sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, friends. Well, I hope I'm not the only one who has misgivings about watching the Winter Olympics in China, given China's human rights record and record of oppression, particularly of the Uyghur Muslims who have been languishing in what can best be described as concentration camp-like conditions. I spotted an interesting article not long ago by a journalist for the Deseret News, a Salt Lake City paper, and so I'm very happy to welcome to Freedom's Ring, Kelsey Dallas. Kelsey, thanks for being with us today. I'm happy to be with you and to talk about this important topic. So, you know, the International Olympic Committee is not really known for its interest in human rights, but why China? Why now? Well, it's hard to work it out because in the political landscape, China has been sort of a bad actor for years. Leaders like the presidents and then leadership of other countries. And so I don't think there was ever an excitement about saying, oh, yes, we'll go to Beijing. But I think that the International Olympic Committee runs into problems when they're trying to find host locations. There's just so much that goes into hosting the games that they maybe don't feel like they can turn someone away. Well, I heard in one discussion uh, someone suggesting that they didn't have a really good, viable alternative candidate. It, was that the case? Well, especially because the conversation about why China's human rights records should be or could have been disqualifying, I wasn't hearing much about that until the summer, immediately after the summer games that had been pushed back due to COVID. And so at that point, you're looking at six or seven months to totally move or, again, postpone the games. And I think the Olympic Committee was just saying, no, we need to stay on schedule and not let this pandemic disrupt us anymore. I can certainly understand that you can't just uh, change horses midstream, so to speak, when it takes years to properly prepare for an event like this with all of the construction and what have you. But now my short-term memory is going, but didn't they host the Summer Olympics? I believe that that was 2008. I should check that date. But yes, it was very similar, or it was very recent timing. And I'm sure that there were similar human rights concerns raised at that time. And so, yes, it maybe could have been a red flag. But it's really been only the last couple of years where a lot of this reporting about persecution of Uyghur Muslims has come out. And the U.S. government's religious freedom arm has been talking quite a bit and sort of building the knowledge about the situation. Well, I gather there's also been quite a bit done at the United Nations to raise a spotlight on the Uyghur Muslims, right? Yes, but I think the United Nations sometimes faces the same pushback that the International Olympic Committee is now getting, which is that maybe the UN hard enough or there's been dissenting voices that are just as powerful as the folks that are angry with China. At the end of the day, China is a very powerful country with its hands in several other countries. And so they're not really easy to uh, bring into line. 
Well, they certainly have not been brought into line, and there's been a lot of pushback on the criticism of their human rights record. Um, so aside from the issue of where to host the Winter Olympics, has there been much hand-wringing or public spotlight on the fact that, you know, China as the host really is just so oppressive? Yes, there has been movement both on the government side and the more uh, just cultural side in terms of trying to raise awareness of what's happening in China. In December, we saw the Biden administration announce the diplomatic boycott. And then there had been follow on events from that that said, does the diplomatic boycott go far enough? And actually, the Monday before the Olympics began, I attended an event hosted by the Heritage Foundation, where one of the speakers was saying, the athletes should refuse to go. The U.S. athletes just, it's not right for them to participate. And I think that was a difficult ask to say, just give it all up and stay home. But it was fascinating to see how the conversation evolved from, oh, a diplomatic boycott would be great to, hey, if they're not going to cancel or move the games, then athletes should remove themselves from it. And the last note I would make is that, as several people have pointed out, the opening ceremonies, as they were broadcast on NBC, the announcers did take pains to discuss the human rights situation and the people that might be in danger or face persecution in China. But there has been some reporting that people haven't heard much about that. That it's like, okay, once they did that during the opening ceremony, everything could go on as planned. It was a normal games. Well, and um, I'm bad with names, but isn't there a prominent Chinese tennis player who has been under house arrest? Yes, and she met with Olympic officials while they're in town for this games and said, um, I'm fine and I'm going to announce, I believe, my retirement. And so that just put a whole new um, anxiety around this. It's like, wait a second, what's going on with the athletes in China and then on the, the side of just athletes who traveled into the country who aren't from there, I'm sure that you've thought about or discussed the, the guidance that said, don't bring your own cell phone, use a burner phone. It's, it was just kind of amazing to think that you're at this pinnacle of your sports career, but you need to be so on guard with your safety and your digital privacy. And that's unfortunate. And I think the same thing kind of happened when the Olympics were in Russia, and it wasn't so much about the U.S. government's relationship with Russia. It was about whether the conditions there and the housing arrangements were appropriate. And I just remember being struck by, if you've really reached the peak of performance as an athlete, why do you run into all these headaches at the Olympics, which should be the most amazing spectacle that you could ever take part in? Well, you know, I'm sympathetic with those who say, you know, I wish our athletes would boycott the thing. But I'm even more sympathetic from the standpoint of the athletes who have devoted years of their lives to preparing for this kind of event. And why should they be the ones to pay the price because of you know, the failure of the international diplomatic and, you know, community to do this. I wouldn't have supported athletes having to make that sacrifice and take that on themselves. Yes. And even some of the groups that were calling for the games to be moved and uh, postponed if need be, many of them said they shouldn't be on the athletes to solve. We shouldn't be saying, okay, well, at the very least, the athletes should drop out. Because that was a lot of frustrations in games past 
was about, that it was on the athletes to do their human rights protests or the, the athletes to get punished because of a decision that was made above their heads. Well, you know, I can't help but think of Colin Kaepernick. We're not, as a country, we're not all that supportive of athletes who, who protest human rights, are we? Correct. And in being in China for the games, somebody like me sitting at home on the couch, it might be easy to say, oh, why don't you speak out about this at your press conference after you've won a gold medal? But you might not only be putting yourself in danger because you're still in the country, but it's also sort of forcing you to take that moment and make it political. And maybe you have plenty of other things you would like to say, thanks to your family, thanks to your friends, thanks to your coaches. And so I think it's appropriate to call out any individual athlete and say, this is how you should be behaving. Well, but I do think it's interesting, as you said, that, that NBC gave some lip service at the opening and maybe seriously, you know, more than just lip service, but since then has been pretty silent. And I mean, so many millions of people, certainly here in this country and around the world are watching. What an opportunity to shine a spotlight on these human rights abuses. I think NBC is in a very difficult position because although there's certainly many people watching, the big talking point has been how many people aren't watching, that there hasn't been a lot of engagement at a normal level. And it's partly a problem of just having had the Summer Olympics. It's partly a problem of perhaps people don't get as excited about the winter sports. But I could just picture the NBC execs scrambling to say, what can we do to bring in more viewers? And I doubt they would say, oh, let's talk more about this really depressing and upsetting human rights situation. People aren't going to tune in. They'd be more likely to tune in for the more traditional sports narratives. Well, I don't know. As far as I'm concerned, some of the skiing events and, of course, the figure skating events, to me, the most desirable Olympic sports to watch along with some of the gymnastics in the Summer Olympics. But, you know, that's just my own personal favorites. Well, let's us take a few minutes here before we're done and at least be specific what kinds of human rights abuses we're talking about that China's been engaging in. Yes. So as you began the segment, uh, most notably, they have been accused of uh, imprisoning members of the Uyghur Muslim community. And it's, it's sort of considered a re-education camp where it says your culture and your faith is a threat to our country because you might be more loyal to your community and to your God than you are to the Chinese government. And so there's been these efforts to imprison or otherwise interfere with the lives of people perceived to be threats to the nation. But I think it goes beyond that. And one of the reasons you've seen more than just Muslim groups speaking out, in general, it's, it's very difficult to operate a religious community in China. You have to be working closely with the government. There's not the same concept of freedom of religion that we have in the U.S. And I think that there's been a lot of great reporting about the situation for Chinese Christians and how many of them feel they need to go underground in order to truly practice their faith. And so there's this big human rights crisis of, of Uyghur Muslims allegedly being pulled away from their lives into forced labor. And then there's the broader problem of people in China not feeling comfortable living out their beliefs in the way they would be able to in other countries. Well, there's most certainly been oppression of the house churches. If you're not towing the line in a government-managed and supervised religion, then you're subject to arrests and beatings and imprisonment. Uh, I did a show some time back with Kenneth Starr, 
an asylum case for a Chinese Christian and shining a spotlight on, on the weaknesses of, of American asylum law to, you know, to, to properly welcome uh, religious dissidents who really are at risk in their home countries. And China has perhaps the most oppressive kind of big brother surveillance system of any country in the world. And to me, if it's allowed to go unchecked, uh, the rest of the world's going to follow. Um, I think, you know, we're going to see that become a new model for many countries. Yes, the technology-fueled surveillance that leads to new and, and in some ways more painful types of punishments where your credit card is frozen or you don't get into the school you would like to attend or you get rejected for a job with no real explanation. So you are right. This is really only the beginning of what could be a really terrible future. You know, one of my close friends who grew up as a Soviet-era Jew in the Ukraine, he was denied entrance to university to study engineering because he was Jewish. So, you know, this kind of discrimination is certainly nothing new, and it's common in these kinds of authoritarian regimes. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's why there are so many voices now coming together to say we need to speak out and just make sure that everyday people understand what's happening, that we can't let this go ignored or unchecked. Well, and I hope our listeners will get a sense that um, that we need to care for one another. You know, whether it's, you know, our fellow Christian believers who are suffering persecution or Muslim believers, that we're kind of all in this together. We either all have freedom or none of us have freedom. And I think that's the bottom line. Well, I'm very grateful, Kelsey Dallas, for being with us today. Kelsey is a reporter for the Deseret News, the local newspaper there in Salt Lake City. But but you're doing some fantastic reporting, and we really appreciate it. And thanks for being with us on Freedom's Ring today. Thank you. As we close, remember at Freedom's Ring, we don't just talk about religious freedom. We help workers suffering religious discrimination. Check out our legal resources page at www.churchstate.org. And don't forget, friends, freedom is not free. Be informed. Get involved. Join the North American Religious Liberty Association, producer of Freedom's Ring, on the web at religiousliberty.info. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.